Welcome to the Singapore Podcast, where we bring you authentic perspectives on East-West cultural exchange from the eyes of youth. Hello everyone, welcome to today's episode of Singapore, which is also the last episode of our 360 Sustainability Series. My name is Yutong, and today with us is Hans Zhou, the Program Manager at Lautu a social enterprise founded in the University of Chicago that promotes a new sustainable development scheme for China with a mission to transform public perception about rural area and development. Prior to joining Lao Tzu, Hans graduated from Pomona College with double degree in environmental analysis and classics. A Doris Duke conservation scholar, Hans has previously worked on K-12 education, promoting environmental awareness with several non-governmental organizations in the United States. He's currently based in China and is going to share with us his passion in environmental justice and his stories promoting sustainable development in China. So welcome, Hans. It's so great to reconnect with you through our channel. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much, Yutong, for the invitation. Uh, and it's definitely a huge pleasure for me to have the chance to share with everyone uh, about my experiences in this field. Yeah, I definitely look forward to hearing about your post-undergraduate adventure so far. So mm -hmm. I think I've known you since the beginning of my college when you were the international student mentor, and you were also mm -hmm. very involved in several other student organizations like ASPC and the Claremont Ballroom Dance Group. I, by the time I actually have no idea mm -hmm. what you were majoring in. So like, honestly, I, I would believe if you told me you're dance or international relations major. So I do wonder uh -huh. how, like by that time, back in college, how did you navigate, navigate through all of those different opportunities and interests and found passion in environmental justice. And is there a mm -hmm. specific point or event where you decided mm -hmm. that you wanted to pursue it as a major and later in, as a career? Mm -hmm, for sure. Um, I think my interest in environment can honestly be traced back to when I spent my childhood, grew up in Hangzhou, which to me is a, such a special city where you know there's a huge uh, lake in the center of the city. Uh, where even if you live within the you know urban perimeters, you have access to so many uh, uh, really awesome natural resources uh, in the uh, urban area. So I think uh, some of my earliest memories are definitely you know growing up, uh, going around the West Lake and then going to different parks, uh, climbing mountains with with my grandma. And I think both my parents also come from uh, the countryside in China. So like during um, breaks I'll also go back to where they come from and then there are also a lot of great just uh, natural sceneries there uh, in the in the in the countryside that they come from and I think uh, all those you know experiences during childhood kind of like accumulated to um, <clears throat> a point where I realized that I'm very passionate about um, the the whole like environmental thing uh, and I think I was very involved with environmental work when I was in high school as well. So um, I went to a boarding school just outside the, uh, just, just outside the city of Boston uh, <clears throat> in like suburban Massachusetts. And um, I think my advisor there during my first year was also happened to be the advisor for the sustainable club there at my high school. So uh, I had a chance to be involved in kind of like energy consumption monitoring and I think we had a little challenge um, based on the dorms uh, and then see how much energy that each dorm consumed. Um, and, and, then, and also just coincidentally, she 
uh, was a alum from this very awesome master school program that's based in Vermont called the Mountain School, where students are able to do farm work and learn more about environmental science, environmental issues uh, for a semester, usually during their junior year of high school, so 11th grade. Uh, and then her first teaching job was also at another program uh, that's based in Maine, that's very much similar. Uh, so I kind of like inspired her by her experiences. I applied to both programs and got A to both. And then finally chose to spend my uh, spring semester of my junior year in high school uh, away at this um this like um uh, peninsula on the coast of the state of Maine, uh, which is kind of like 20 minutes from um Brunswick, uh, which is where like Bowdoin College is located. Uh, and for that semester, uh, I was able to live in a cabin with uh, four other uh, students, and then we were doing morning chores uh, every day for two weeks. I actually milked the cow. Uh, during those two weeks, which was a pretty great experience. And in terms of classes, um, all the, I, every student was required to take class called the Natural History of the Maine Coast, uh, where you just don't not only learn about the ecosystem, but you're also required to go on these four, pretty much like four hours long field trips every week uh, for once a week. And uh, so for the beginning, since my semester started kind of like late winter, uh, we were going to the uh, woods just uh, uh, just on where the campus is and just to like observe and see uh, the different kind of trees and plants and trying to, you know, like make guesses about why they grow in the way that they are. Um, because all I, you know, the, the sun uh, really impacts how, you know, um, trees grow and uh, you can really see the positionality between different uh, individuals and then in the spring we'll go on to the main coast and learn about the uh, the tidal zone so you can see like the different like uh, marine animals uh, and other organisms that live within the tidal area um, and I think that became kind of like a um, great starting point for me to feel like I want to uh, dive deeper into this field um, because there's so much to talk about. And then there was also an elective I took uh, while I was there called environmental issues. Uh, and then honestly, that was actually the point. The, the first time I heard the term environmental justice uh, in a very comprehensive way. Uh, and then to really understand like, what this term means uh, and what kind of struggles there are uh, in the context of the US about how racial minorities are usually uh, suffering from environmental issues more than uh, other groups. Uh, so, so I would definitely say that that experience uh, that, that I spent uh, a whole semester away from my boarding school and living in a cabin in Maine uh, was a starting point for me to realize that I want to pursue uh, my undergraduate studies in the environmental field. Um, and um, yeah, and then just going back to your point about environmental justice, I think I also did go through this journey about uh, what exactly I want to focus my study on uh, while I was at Pomona. So, so the, the environmental analysis program at Pomona or at the Cleveland Colleges in general uh, is pretty interdisciplinary mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that in most other undergraduate colleges in the US, they usually start pre environmental studies, which is more social science humanities focused from environmental science, which is a more STEM focused uh, major. Uh, so at, at Pomona, you can 
majoring in random analysis, but choose to focus on something. Uh, and for a while, and for a while, I was kind of uh, hesitant to like choosing whether I want to do environmental bio, which is more mm -hmm. science focused, or right. uh, try to pursue a track that's actually more focused on environmental justice. Um, I think the realization really came, I guess, the fall semester of my sophomore year. Uh, when I took a class uh, actually with a pivot professor called Progress and Oppression, uh, where we reviewed uh, a lot of different cases around the whole world about the conflict between economic development uh, and environmental and cultural protection. Uh, and then you can really see how capitalism as a, as a you know, uh, system that is spreading pretty much to the entire uh, earth has honestly because of um, you know, uh, to rush planning or other reasons have destroyed a lot of like indig indigenous cultures and the landscape that they rely themselves on. Uh, and I think uh, for the final paper there, I also, you know, research a bit into some of the conflicts in Inner Mongolia uh, in China, uh, where grassland decoration uh, has become an issue because uh, all the government policy that are trying to kind of like re, so, so all the government policies that are trying to stop this issue of grassland degradation uh, is actually preventing a lot of ethnic, ethnic minority groups that used to live a nomad lifestyle. Uh, and then these groups are being forced to live in the cities uh, and just don't really uh, have just, uh, at first just had a really hard time to adjust to the life there and i think that became a serious um point of conflict in terms of like you know how do we give them uh these groups the right to their cultural sovereignty uh as opposed to you know like protect the environment uh in the area um so so that was a class that i think really inspired me to look deeper into these issues uh and and i think uh, at the end of my uh sophomore year uh i just you know went out to declare major in mm -hmm. analysis and also made up my mind to uh, you know really concentrate in the environmental justice track yeah it's fascinating how your beautiful childhood memories stimulated all of the experimental learning experiences and the field work that you did in high school and later trans got translated into your academic interest in college I will also appreciate the interdisciplinary nature of the learning that we have in college that allows us to see the implication of the knowledge that we learn in the classroom in very different aspects of life and how they inter intersect with each other. So I wonder, after spending time in high school and college in the US, you decided to come back to China for a post-undergraduate pursuit. So what prompted this decision or is this something you always had in mind along the way? Um, I think, yeah, honestly, it wasn't really a plan I had in my mind for a while. Um, I think while I was in my senior year in college, uh, I was uh, mostly actually looking for teaching jobs because I was very intrigued by the, you know, the different experiential learning experience I had in high school and really just trying to find opportunities that can replicate those or, you know, try to have the chance to learn more on the educator side to see how environmental mm -hmm. education works, uh, particularly in the US. 
Uh, however, uh, you know, um, COVID happened, honestly, and then and then my uh, and then there's some family uh, issues that I had to like take care of. Um, so by the end of my senior year, so around like May, June, uh, I made a decision to come back, and then just decided to uh, stay in China for the time being. Uh, yeah, and I think just um, and I think because of that, so I was able to you know shift my job searching. Uh, focused to organizations and companies based in China, uh, and and then I was able to uh, find out to uh, also through kind of like long connections. Um, right. So maybe next we can talk a little bit about your current work at Lao Tu. I think I also mm -hmm. heard about the organization before joining the college. So when I told my mm -hmm. other friend who was also an environmentalist that I'm going to Pomona, she was very excited and mm -hmm. mentioned that there's a super cool social enterprise that has been engaging mm -hmm. in some impact-driven work on rural development in China and was founded by mm -hmm. a Claremont alumna from China. So mm -hmm. besides all of this information, can you give us some more context about Lao Tu? So maybe just introduce us, the work and yeah. programs that Lao Tu has been doing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think you actually give a really great summary at the beginning. So Lao Tu is a social enterprise that is trying to promote sustainable development in China uh, with a particular focus in the rural areas. Uh, and then we try to use different methods, including education, ecotourism, uh, and uh, various nonprofit um, projects uh, with partnership with the government and local community uh, to help facilitate you know, more sustainable uh, lifestyle, uh, especially in the rural area, but also for, you know, people who are also who are in urban, urban China uh, as well. Yeah, so right now at Lao Tu, what kind of uh, programs do you get to engage with on a regular basis and what are your major mm -hmm. responsibilities? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, for sure. Uh, so, so as a social enterprise, right, so, so the idea is that we use um, business models to um, to kind of like make profit, but uh, use those, those profits to feed into our nonprofit projects uh, that happen um, particularly within China. Um, but at the same time, we also try to like get funding uh, from various foundations and government sectors as well. So uh, one of the main roles that I have taken within Lao Tu is to apply to these grants. Um, uh, and then another thing is that we have like applied to various um, grants, both in China outside as well, right? So the first, one of the first tasks that I got last year was actually to uh, finalize a grant application for uh, the DBS. There was a DBS yeah. social enterprise fund. Uh, yeah, so, so it's also based in Singapore. Uh, and then I think something that uh, we were able to go last year that was really exciting is that uh, we got a funding from the Bosch uh, Alumni Network uh, that is kind of uh, affiliated with the Bosch Foundation. Uh, and we were one of the 40 projects that got funding last year and the only one from uh, mainland China. And that was pretty exciting. Um, so grant application is definitely a huge part of my uh, job at Lao Tu. And other than that, I also help facilitate almost in a project manager uh, role. Honestly, just like a lot of our projects are related to biodiversity conservation these days. Uh, so as you and probably our audience know that the Convention on Biological Diversity um, um, Conference of Parties uh, is taking place in China. Uh, supposed to be happening last year, but because of the pandemic, it got pushed to this fall. 
uh, that is happening in Kunming, China. Law2 is an official participating organization uh, in one of the parallel forums. Uh, so since the end of last year, we've been prepping to uh, do the work in terms of like how do we uh, facilitate conversation dialogues on a global scale about um, you know biodiversity conservation and especially with our expertise because we uh, work with mostly rural communities in China uh, we kind of like focus on this issue about like how do we engage uh, communities which on the international uh, through the international frame it mostly refers to indigenous or local communities but in, in the context of China uh, it's mostly rural communities like how do we empower these populations uh, to engage with the important work of uh, biodiversity conservation. Uh, so I've been helping with kind of like online conference that we organized earlier this year. Uh, and then because we are participating in this um, parallel forum uh, to the uh, CBD conference this year. Uh, so, so yeah, I'm also helping with a lot of coordination with other groups in terms of like um, promotion and events. And yeah, and then and then I think those are the two main kind of areas that I've been working on since I joined Law Two. Yeah, it's really amazing to hear like how your work mm -hmm. has has been helping Law Two to make the connection between the global mm -hmm. efforts on sustainability and the things happening mm -hmm. on the ground in China, like the rural engaging the rural communities, like you mentioned. So mm -hmm. with your previous experiences working in the NGOs in the States as well, I wonder what is the biggest difference that you find in the work that you're doing in China? I think the environment uh, is definitely very different, like like environment not as a like natural environment, but kind of like the, the, the social environment between different nonprofits. Um, I don't want to like, you know, always say the bad thing, but I think definitely one big difference that I observe is that there seems to be a more more of a hierarchy within the nonprofit mm -hmm. circle uh, in China. Like, uh, I think a lot of times, like, whether or not you get an opportunity or funding is more based on how long you've been working or like how long your organization has mm -hmm. been around. So, so honestly, like, even... Uh, you know, like Lao is participating officially uh, as a participating uh, organization to the Para Forum to the CBD conference. I think um, a lot of the other groups were not really happy with this uh, decision that they made um, because Lao is uh, rather young compared to a lot of other yeah. uh, nonprofit that's based in China. Um, but at the same time, I think uh, what is uh, more interesting to me is that like, I definitely feel like nonprofits in China uh, works more closely with government sectors uh, than, than those in the US. And I think that's definitely a result of like, the political system and how different that is. Um, and I think in the US, like the narrative is always kind of like, not always that how you work against uh, the government, but kind of like, yeah, but how about, uh, but, but it's more kind of like, how do you identify the uh, the gaps and the loopholes mm -hmm. that the government is not able to cover uh, and then try to establish initiatives that will to fill those holes uh, in the governmental processes. Uh, versus I think in China, that process becomes a bit more collaborative. Uh, in a sense mm -hmm. that even for Lao Tzu, that this, um, which is positioned as a social enterprise, we actually try very hard to 
um, build relationships with uh, various government actors uh, in the areas that we work with. And I think that has actually been um, very interesting in the sense that, uh, you know, you get more information about like, what kind of policy shift or change will happen in the near future. And I think you just get, get to stay more informed on that, uh, which I think is pretty interesting. And I think especially uh, in the areas that Lao Tzu is working with, you know, like in rural China, uh, I think um, government also has a stronger presence than um, you know, in that sense, and I think I think governments on the rural local level uh, work more closely with the local community and population, uh, and I think that is also a really great advantage in terms of you know providing us with the opportunity to get a closer read uh, what the local needs are, and then that serves as better in terms of like implementing projects uh, in those areas. Yeah. It's really interesting to hear your take on this topic about how environmental NGOs in China is more collaborative in the sense that it gets more information on the government policy directives and like stay more informed versus Mm -hmm. the kind of NGO work in the United States where like play the role of filling in the gap of government work and being more like a separate entity. So Mm -hmm. I do wonder with all your previous exposures to environmental issues in the Western society through high school and college, what are the exciting and challenging moments promoting environmental justice in China? And how did you navigate through all of these nuances on the ground? Yeah, uh, for sure. That's a great question. I think to start off, I think environmental justice is not a term that has taken off uh, in China. I think because of the very particular um, political system that we are in, the word justice is rather sensitive. Uh, to the current political environment in China. Uh, so to begin with, right, I think I definitely struggle with, you know, trying to find a new way to understand what uh, environmental justice can look like in China. Uh, and in that sense, I think a lot of Lao Tzu's projects really provide me with that insight. Uh, so for example, uh, this project that we have been doing in, in the Wolong uh, Natural Reserve in Sichuan province uh, since 2018 uh, is a very telling example. So Lao Tzu's founder, Yi, has been working in the Wolong area since 2012. Uh, and then she has a just really, um, you know, deep understanding of the local issues because the just how many years she's been working there. Uh, and because of the fact that Wolong is a national uh, nature reserve, there are just a lot of restrictions in terms of like how economy can develop in the area. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, the economy there is not doing super well because the, all the regulations that they put on in terms of like protecting the natural environment, uh, because it, it is a habitat for uh, various uh, protected animals, including pandas. Uh, in China. So, and, and then as a result, like, you know, like a lot of the young or like the youth population in those areas uh, have chosen to move to cities to find other job opportunities. Uh, and then in fact, uh, those areas is also uh, very, like there's a high concentration of ethnic minority groups, like several of them in that area. So there's a pretty unique local culture as well. So with the flight of these uh, young population, uh, we also observe a very serious um, crisis of cultural loss 
that a lot of local, unique local cultures have are being threatened because you know there's not a lot of opportunities to pass them down um, to the next generation. Uh, so because of that, in 2018, we started this project called Pandas Organic Home, uh, which is in partnership with Natural Land. Uh, it's a organization based in Germany, and then I think it's one of the biggest uh, organizations in Europe that promotes organic agriculture. Uh, and then we also teamed up with a uh, team of professors from the Agricultural University in China. Uh, and then with these experts, we went to Wolong again and then started to observe the, the issues that they have there. And then have, uh, you know, decided to help them to do this work of transforming their agriculture into a more organic one. Um, meaning that like it doesn't it doesn't use this like uh, industrial fertilizer or pesticides and uh, it, uh, we try to take on a more traditional way of producing those you know um, products that will help the growth of crops uh, and then that will on the one hand will you know like abide the environmental regulations uh, in the area but on the other hand also will you know uh, help the, the, the crops to grow better, so we have better quantity and quality of agricultural produce uh, in the area. Uh, and then I think the final goal is to reach us to help them to establish a strong industry of agriculture uh, that's able to sustain their economic development uh, in the area. Starting 2018, we've been also uh, trying to identify uh, different customers, uh, especially in tier one cities in China, uh, so that they have a more complete product chain from Wolong to these urban consumers. And then we also uh, got a grant supporting this project in 2019 uh, that is funded by the, I think it's called the Environmental Fund of China, uh, along with the Poverty Relief uh, foundation in China uh, and but anyway so so there was a grant that was uh, jointly funded by several different entities uh, and, and yeah yeah and then I think that that was uh, uh, and I think the matter of fact that how you know the environmental uh, foundation as well as the poverty relief foundation supported this project is very telling you know in the sense that especially in today's China's political scheme uh, solving poverty issues is so urgent and then you can I think Lao Tzu is very cutting edge and innovative in that sense that how we can bring those two, two issues onto the same project and really showcase you know uh, because environmental justice uh, as a concept really cares about the interaction between environmental issues and social issues uh, and then particularly catered to how you know marginalized communities and groups uh, either either suffer more from se uh, severe environmental issues or you know ignored um, during these environmental protection policies. Um, so so I think this this is a very telling example of what the Western world will call environmental justice um, project, but you know in China it's just framed differently. Um, so so I think just you know the wording itself uh, um, looks very different um, based on my experience. Um, but at the same time, I feel like there are also some very exciting concepts that are more trending and popular uh, within the context of China. Like, for example, uh, President Xi Jinping has, you know, uh, turned a lot of his attention to sustainability in China as well. Uh, and then there's this concept called ecological civilization, 
that uh, that he's really trying to promote uh, the Chinese is Shentai Wenming. Uh, so this is actually a pretty future-oriented concept where uh, we he believes in this uh, future civilization uh, that really can achieve the balance between human development and natural protection. Or honestly, in that wording, again, just like enforces the binary of uh, human nature. So, so I think in other words, this I think it's there's this like futuristic um, civilization and world that we will live in, where you know there's no boundary between the human world and the natural world, uh, and then we can see more harmonious existence between us and various other you know organisms and entities that exist uh, in in this on this earth. So in that sense, I think it's pretty exciting uh, for me to just learn all the different frameworks that is uh, unique in China, uh, whether it's because of the political system or the uh, the different culture that we have uh, in this country, uh, and then trying to think about like what's the connection between these uh, and the concept that I've learned in the US. Um, so at least for me, I think this kind of intellectual work uh, is pretty exciting. Yeah, this is so fascinating. First of all, thank you for the clarification about the use of the term environmental justice in Chinese context. And from what you just share, it seems like the environmental awareness and the efforts to address sustainability is pretty much a young concept in China and organizations like Lao Tu are still navigating this whole new space, trying to come up with projects that align with the other developmental goals of China, like eliminating poverty, uplifting marginalized communities. And it's definitely amazing to see momentum like this, especially from our individual perspectives of being educated in the West as well. So I wonder what is your personal take on rural development in China in the next five or 10 years? And how shall we get ourselves ready for the transition? Mm, yeah, that's a, that's a question I actually haven't really thought about previously. Uh, and I want to answer this through more of a personal perspective. So as I mentioned, uh, both my parents are from uh, rural China. Uh, they're actually from villages also in the province of Zhejiang. Uh, and then as you probably know, right, uh, like development in Zhejiang is much more advanced in comparison to a lot of other provinces or areas in China. Uh, so even when I go back to where my you know grandparents come from or where my parents from, uh, I think the development there is so it's incredible in the sense that like how they are able to do a lot of like infrastructure renovation and then really uh, allow them to become uh, more uh, economically sustained uh, in that sense. Like, and, and I think about, uh, and then just, I, I think there's just also this like small family story that I want to share that I think I, I discovered back in when I was in my junior year of college. Uh, so my grandpa, well actually I never met uh, on my mom's side because uh, he passed away when, when my mother was still in college. Uh, and then he was actually doing this project of implementing uh, tap water in their village because uh, previous efforts has been put into that uh, and then somehow just never succeeded. So people still rely on, you know, water tanks or uh, the wells that they traditionally have uh, in those villages to, to sustain their uh, daily use of water. Uh, so when my mom was in college, uh, uh, was around the time when my grandpa retired from his job, and then he was just you know uh, trying to find something to do, uh, and then he was like, okay, I just don't, I just cannot believe that uh, they can finish up this project. 
Uh, so he did all the work about you know did just going to into town uh, several times mm-hmm. to find construction team and did all the surveying and tried to like do the uh, implementation work with them as well. And then very unfortunately, he had a uh, stroke uh, during this whole process and then wasn't uh, given the uh, immediate medical care. So like he passed away before this project was so able to be finished off. But at the same time, like uh, he also did uh, completed, uh, even though he passed away before it ended. Uh, so I think in, back in 2019, uh, while I was visiting my mom's village uh, in Zhejiang, a lot of villagers who I came across were also, you know, cause after they know like who I am, like they start to tell about how every time they see tap water in their own household, they will still, you know, think of my grandpa who um, did all those work for them. You know, just going back to this rural development question, I think I I think it's happening. It has always been happening uh, like since my grandparents' generation. Uh, and I would definitely say because of the, the level of economic development in my province, uh, rural development uh, has really taken off for several years now. Uh, and then even though I think uh, it definitely hasn't reached, you know, the same uh, level of uh, a standard for, of life uh, in the urban areas in China. I would definitely say that uh, it has, you know, definitely transformed uh, a lot uh, in the past decade or so. Uh, and then with that, I think there's also the recognition that not all the areas are as economically developed as Zhejiang uh, in the rest of China. But I think like you definitely see this tendency uh, mm-hmm. of, you know, like government being paying more attention uh, to rural development in other parts of the country. Uh, and especially, I think, some of the narratives, I think, that has started to emerge more often, uh, like on social media, is that uh, about how the concept that when Deng Xiaoping uh, started government reform back then, like the, the mission is also to, you know, let a, a portion of the population to become rich first uh, and then the underlying theme is also trying to you know is to get the rest of the country to catch up and I think uh, I, I actually haven't paid a lot that much attention to kind of like the national government policy level but uh, I also believe that like there are definitely some shift in that regard right trying to make sure that like other areas are also benefiting from the entire economic development scheme uh, that China is developing uh, and then I think on our side of work, right, I think there's definitely, you know, areas that are still underdeveloped. Uh, and that's, I feel like that's why Lao Tui is trying to take on these nonprofit projects and trying to reach the areas that haven't benefited from, you know, the fast growing economy in China yet. Uh, and then I think part of our job is also to promote awareness uh, of such issues and then trying to set examples of how economic reform or you know a different method for economic development can take take place in some of the rural areas in China. Uh, so even though the, the project I mentioned is based in Wolong, we're actually uh, working actively with other areas in China as well and to see uh, if a similar model can be implemented uh, in other parts of China uh, as well. So I think that's pretty exciting in the sense that there are groups like, like ours uh, that is actively working with the government to make sure that urban, uh, like sorry, like rural developments taking place in this country. Yeah.
Yeah, it's so inspiring to hear the story that you just shared and to see that like through your through the work that you're doing in China right now, you're able to draw the connection between the policy directives on the governmental or national level with the things that are happening on the ground. So mm-hmm. I wonder as youth ourselves, what are some of the possible ways for us to be part of this momentum for sustainable development, environmentalism, and more? Yeah, for sure. I think like youth uh, as a group has always been at the front line of environmental movement. Just to you know, give a example that's more well known, right? Like Greta Thunberg uh, has been at almost like the, the top, like the very, very front line of environmental movement in the West uh, for a couple of several years. And I think that's very telling about like, you know, the power that resides within the population that is so-called youth. Uh, and then as I mentioned, that Lao Tu is officially participating in this pair of forum um, to the um, biodiversity conference happening this year. And then the, the forum is actually also themed for youth, women, and community. Uh, so, uh, in May, we actually uh, helped launch this initiative uh, for youth, especially in China, to make commitment to biodiversity conservation. Uh, and then there are a lot of programs that, that were started by other participating organizations uh, and also as well. So, so I think there are definitely a lot of different opportunities uh, to engage in sustainable development and environmentalism, especially this year in China. Uh, and uh, I would say, like, this is very interesting because um, I was actually talking to a group of people about uh, environmental education. Uh, and then I think there's also there's something that really comes down to, I think this is a constant debate in environmental studies about the role of the individual versus the role of the system in doing environmental work, right? Should we hold everyone every individual to a standard where they practice uh, the, tr- the most uh, sustainable lifestyle. And I think some people argue that like, no, like not all individuals have the capability to, um, you know, hold themselves to that standard, uh, which also, I, which I, I think is also true, right? So I think for me, it's definitely a matter of both individual change and systematic change as well, right? I think for me, it's really amazing to see like, uh, there's so many, you know, public education programs that help youth to realize uh, what they can do on an individual basis to make the small steps to make things happen. Like, for example, like Lao Tu has actually also been organizing zero waste uh, education programs uh, in Shenzhen, particularly to educate especially primary school and middle school students about uh, how to do trash uh, sorting, how to do like recycling and all this uh, stuff. And then I think at the same time, right, as, as the youth population is going into especially policy making field or other uh, industries, uh, how do we pay, pay more attention to, to the concept of sustainability uh, environmentalism? And I think that's also something I truly pr- appreciated. Uh, in terms of like studying or looking through environmental, environmental work as a career option is that you see so many possibilities. So since I moved to Beijing, I've also had the opportunity to meet other people through sustainability-related events. Uh, and you can see there's just such a huge range in terms of like what you can do. Like, for example, even within the financial sector, like in the mm-hmm. finance industry, there are a lot of very exciting opportunities for people to engage in carbon neutrality, energy transition, mm-hmm. all those things. Yeah. And, then, and then honestly, I think China is on the, government, on the governmental level 
is also paying so much attention to those issues,、uh, to those developments. I think my point is like whatever you try to pursue as either academic major. Uh, or career path, I think there's always opportunity for everyone to find a connection to sustainability. For me, I think environmental issue shouldn't just be you know a group of environmental professions trying to work on it. It really just requires the efforts from all these like different sectors of the society trying to make this happen. So, so I guess the main message I'm trying to say is that you know just to learn more and then to observe、mm-hmm. to find something that I think you are interested that can help with the environmental movement. Right, definitely. So you mentioned that like youth ourselves are definitely an important part of the bottom up momentum for environmentalism that complements the top down changes brought by the policy directives. And also you mentioned. About the possibilities associated with the career related to environment, so that actually connects to the very last question of this chat. So, to our audience interested in the career related to environmental issues, what advice would you give to them in terms of college, the different programs available, internship opportunities, and more? For sure. Um, I think based on my own experience, and honestly, I think this is kind of like personal struggle that I have right now. Is that like I definitely chose more of a social science and more of a theoretical approach to my undergraduate study on the environment. It's all really fascinating, right? Like I was really、uh, reading queer theory, I was reading gender、mm-hmm. theory, I was reading ethnic theory that you know really helped on me understand how you know these various marginalized groups and their connection with the environment and their struggles with environmental issues. Uh, it definitely, you know, was、uh, exciting for me on a intellectual conceptual level.、Um, but at the same time, I think I also recognized that I wasn't that、uh, <laughs> determined in terms of like trying to develop more hard skills in that sense. So, like, I think there are a lot of、uh, technical things that I really wished I have developed during、um, college. Like, for example. Even though I was very fascinated by GIS, which is Geographical Information System, that is a really popularized tool. Basically, you can do both social、uh, science or science research, and then to show your data and results、uh, in the form of a map. So it's very visually appealing and exciting and engaging for your audience. So, so I would say definitely one advice to is to、uh, whether or not like your school is more professional. Oriented or more theoretical based, think、um, you know it's never gonna hurt you if you decide to learn more of these kind of like,、uh, especially the trending technology and digital tools because it's really、uh, useful in that sense.、Uh, and then at the same time, I think going back to what I said about possibility in the environmental field, I think all environmental professionals also don't come from. A strict background of environmental studies or environmental science, like you can also do math, you can also do a lot of other like subjects that will lead you to a path or、uh, a career in the environmental field as well. So I think you know, like, don't feel the pressure to say that, like, oh, in order to pursue career in the environmental field, I have to major in environment related subjects.、Uh, so I think that's also something I would say. And then three, I think this is also very general, but I think it's really useful. It's kind of like you know, really use the opportunity to connect with different people who work in the industry, and then、mm-hmm. to get a sense of like 
what their day-to-day -day work looks like. Because uh, as I mentioned, like there's so many things you can do that is related to sustainability. Or there's actually a, a another term that is trending these days called ESG. Environment, uh, social, uh, governance. Yeah, 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 governance. So like that has been a sector that I, I think a lot of, you know, just the corporations are developing as well. I think just, you know, like to really get a sense of what different job opportunities will look like. I think it's definitely great if, you know, people can just make more connections and talk to different people about their work experiences. Yeah, these are all really great advice. And the first part of your share really threw me back to all the social science classes that I took back in my freshman year, studying uh -huh. the gender theory uh -huh. and the struggle you mentioned about struggling with the hard skills that are considered really important in the jobs that we'll be doing later is something I, I guess like many of the liberal arts graduate or students will share. Mm -hmm. But uh, regardless of the like academic background, I think uh, as you mentioned, it's really important just to talk with people in the field don't restrict mm -hmm. ourselves to like one straight career path. So mm -hmm. yeah, thank you Hans for taking your time for the chat. I mm -hmm. really enjoyed hearing your thoughts and stories. Hope your adventures continue in an exciting mm -hmm. manner. Yeah. Looking mm -hmm. forward to catching up again and hear more updates. Yeah, yeah. So, thank you so much yeah, for your time. Yeah. Wish you all the best in future endeavors, especially yep. pursuing your current passion, prom promoting environmental justice in the field. It's definitely amazing to see uh, social organizations like Lao to are building up the momentum. Mm -hmm. So to our audience, thank you for staying till the end. Hope you had enjoyed all the five episodes of our sustainability series. Please follow us on social media for more updates. Thank you and see you next time.